The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, guys. So today's scripture is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. It's on page 241 in the Bibles under the chairs and also on the screen. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was... And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So uh, we're back in our series this morning, uh, in spite of us, the story of uh, God and his people in First Samuel. And this week, we're actually in all of chapters 18 and 19. We're going to try to make up some ground for the missed weeks that we had. And uh, since it has been a while, let's just catch, us, catch each other up on what's been going on in the continuing saga that is First Samuel. So First Samuel, again, begins in what is really like the dark ages for Israel. It's the dark ages for Israel spiritually. It's the dark ages for Israel politically and militarily. It's the dark ages for Israel culturally. It's just a, it is not a fun place to live at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And this one woman, this, this simple farmer's wife, this country farmer's wife named Hannah, uh, God does something in her life that ends up changing all of Israel. She, she asked God to give her, her barren womb a, a son, and she bears Samuel and presents Samuel, gives him to the Lord. And God takes this young man, born of this young farmer woman who, you know, just you would not expect to change the course of history. To her, he gives this son who then he uses to change 
history in the nation of Israel. Uh, Samuel's born, he grows up to be a prophet, and he, he leads, he, God uses Samuel to lead Israel to actually a time of spiritual awakening. Israel is called back to the Lord, and they start to follow the Lord and worship the Lord, and then through that, God even gives some amazing military, military victories. Israel is all of a sudden more at peace and feels safer and secure than it has for generations and generations and generations. So they start to follow God through Samuel. Then Samuel grows up and gets old, and they say, hey, you're old. We don't like your sons. They're not good. Um, we would like a king like all the other nations have. We want a king like they have. And so what they're doing is they reject God from being king over them directly, and they want their own king so they can be like all the other nations around them. And so Samuel says, hey, if that happens, it's not going to go as great for you as you think it is. Like a lot of things that we ask for God, right? And, and like my kids ask, like my kids ask, hey, could I have Landon would eat candy for every single meal and every single snack. Uh, he, he really only likes things that are sweet. That's the only kind of food that he likes. And, and, and if, I if he came to me and asked me, hey, can I have uh, like a well-rounded meal of chocolate and then some like sprees and then maybe some, uh, some you know, gummy bears on the side, can I have that for my dinner? And I said, yes, he would soon like like, even if I tell him, like, it's not going to go well for you, he would soon realize this is not going to go as well for me as I think it will. And that's what happens to the nation of Israel. They beg for a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel says, it's not going to go as well for you as you think it does. And they say, we want it anyway. We want those gummy bears and that chocolate and those sprees. And it does not go as well for them as they think it should go. Saul becomes king, and it's interesting, though, for a while, that it does seem to be going well. He, he does bring some security. He does bring some success. Uh, things seem, do seem to be safer and calmer around them, but something happens. Saul disobeys the Lord several times to a point where Samuel comes back to Saul and, say, and says, the Lord, who anointed you king of Israel and empowered you by his spirit to be the king of Israel, has now rejected you from being king. And it's not gonna, the throne is not going to be passed down to your sons and beyond that. And he secretly then goes to David, young David, and anoints him as king over Israel. And then under that anointing, David starts to all of a sudden, this forgotten shepherd boy, I mean literally forgotten son of Jesse, begins to rise in prominence. He starts to succeed in some things. He begins to rise in service to Saul, including what we saw a few weeks ago, was his Goliath can't even fill out Saul's armor. And now this is interesting. The rest of this book, the rest of 1 Samuel, if that's not already like, you know, enough for you, the rest of 1 Samuel reads like like a soap opera. It's really like a season of empire except like like an Israeli ancient season of empire. Like it's like it's full of crazy things. Like guys, if you haven't like actually just sat down and read the Bible, you should do so. Like it's not like cute and fuzzy. It's like gritty. And real, it is real life. It is it is super relatable because it's full of messed up people and messed up situations, making messed up decisions that just compound on top of each other, and then God steps in and rescues everybody. And, and hey, if, if you feel like, hey, I've really shipwrecked my life, my life is a mess, I didn't think I would look like this, feel like this, I didn't think I would have done the things I've done at this point, my life is a shambles, guess what the history of humanity has been? 
It's been us doing that and God stepping in in his graciousness and his goodness to fix the messes that we've made, to heal the wounds that we've received, to bind up the broken bones that we have ourselves broken. That's the story of the rest of 1 Samuel. And at the center of this drama, this empire-like soap opera, are Saul and David. And what they do is they sort of serve as a contrast between the way that we deal with things, that's Saul, and the way that God deals with things or the way that he's called us to deal with things. It's, it's interesting, right? Because Saul was chosen to be king because he was handsome and wealthy and stood a head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. In other words, he was exactly who you would pick to be king if you were picking the person to be king. He was, Saul was the mighty one. Now David was the forgotten youngest son of Jesse. He was the weak one. He was the shepherd. That's his great you know, accomplishment. He's a shepherd with a slingshot, and he writes poems and sings songs. So he's you know, that kind of guy, a little bit more artistic. Not the kind of guy that you would pick to be the great warrior leader of his people. In our passage, chapters 18 and 19 this morning, highlights one of the major differences between Saul and between David, between our way, between the Lord's way, and it is how do they respond when they feel threatened? How did Saul respond when he felt threatened? And how did David respond when he felt threatened? When things get tough, when there's trouble, or you think there's trouble, how did they respond? And then what can we learn from that? When we feel threatened, when we're in trouble, when we think we're in trouble. We're gonna try to answer three questions this morning. First of all, how did Saul respond when he felt threatened? How did David respond when he felt threatened? And then how should you respond when you feel threatened? Very simple. How did Saul respond? How did David respond? And how should you respond? First, of up, first up, how did Saul respond when he felt threatened? Now, Saul has been king for some amount of time now. He's been fairly successful from an external perspective. He has established himself as king. He's not under any threat of his throne being taken over, at least it seems from the outside. He's achieved some military victory so that Israel feels more safe and more secure than they have before. He is rich and he's powerful. He has, his children are grown. He's kind of grooming them to take on the family business, and he's enjoyed the season of success. Everything looks pretty good from the outside. If you were judging from the outside, and this is, I think this is a constant thing that we need to remember about ourselves and the people around us, is how many times do we see somebody who looks like they have it all together and figured out from the outside, but we don't realize what a mess things are on the inside. And sometimes you can feel like, you, you look across the yard, right? And you see like, hey, those people, they seem to have everything together and I am such a mess. It's helpful to remember sometimes just that we're all a mess, right? And when you all come in here looking good on a Sunday morning and you're smiling and you're like, hello, brother, how are you? Good morning. May God be with you. And you're like, man, somebody does that to you and you're like, man, they got it all together. I'm such a mess. I don't belong here. Remember, they're a mess too. We're all messes together. And that should be encouraging for us. Everything looks to be okay from the outside, but there's a key factor that underlines this season of Saul's life that people around him 
don't see or probably wouldn't see because we don't know if anybody other than Saul himself and Samuel knew that Samuel had come to Saul and told him that God had rejected him as being king over his people. As far as we know, it may only be Saul and Samuel and maybe David, but we don't even know if David was told that. He was just told he was the next king. We don't know if he was even told if Saul had been rejected. God's spirit, which came upon Saul whenever he was anointed king, is now gone. And that's the key factor that starts to, starts to change everything in Saul's life and everything in the kingdom. So this is a, a long passage. So I'm just gonna kind of run through kind of the outline of what happens as you guys can see this, uh, this uh, soap opera start to unfold. Beginning in verse uh, chapter 18, the section that uh, Madeline read for us, we see that right after uh, David's defeat of Goliath, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son, the crown prince of Israel, was knit to David. And it says in verse one that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then in verse three, something interesting happens. Jonathan makes a covenant with David because he loved him. And in verse four, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So if a crown prince of Israel is doing this to David, then something miraculous and powerful has happened. Jonathan has recognized, I am not going to be the next king of of Israel, David is called to be the next king of Israel. And I'm willingly going to take off my royal robe and take all of the accoutrements that go along with being the crown prince of Israel and give them to David to signify that he is going to be the next king of Israel. And Saul would have seen this and he would have been irritated in his soul. What is happening with Jonathan? Doesn't he know that his relationship with David, his friendship with David and what he is doing is going to ensure that he's not going to be the next king of Israel? Saul would have been vexed inside him. He would have been vexed about Jonathan and it would have been incredibly important in this time because in this time, it wasn't about individual achievement. It was about family achievement. And so the greatest thing that you could do as a man or as a woman would be to pass on what you have to the next generation, to know that it's safe and secure in your family. And now Saul sees all his hard work, all his years of service being given away to some shepherd kid from Bethlehem by his son. And then in verse eight, we see, and Saul was very angry because uh, David is starting to fight and Saul's fighting the, these battles. And one day when they came, come back in from a battle, the women are welcoming the armies back into the city and they're singing. And the first verse, like Saul really likes it. Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's like, yeah, that's right, I have. Like, keep singing that. Keep singing that song. Let me hear it more and more. And then the, the next verse, or the next <laughs> comes up and they say, hey, but David... David has slain his 10,000s. And then Saul's like, it's like the, the record skips. Like, wait, what? I don't like that part. You guys don't get to sing that song. Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And, and then he says, what more can David have but the kingdom? And Saul, this is an interesting phrase we're gonna come back to later. And Saul eyed David from that day on. He watched him. And then the next day, this is not an accident. Saul becomes 
He begins to become jealous and envious of David. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. It hasn't happened before. It's how he met David to begin with. And this is what happened. David comes in, he starts to play for Saul. Saul's sitting there being tormented by this evil spirit. And he sees the reason for his torment sitting across the room from him. And he decides, this David who has served me, who is best friends with my son, who has fought with me in battle, like this is the guy that's given me all the problems and I'm going to kill him. And it says he tried to kill him not once. He tried to kill. This is the soap opera coming in, right? Can you see this? He tries to kill him with a spear in the house. It'd be incredibly unusual for a king or anybody to hold a spear inside his house or inside his palace. You took that to war or battle. You didn't sit around inside. It's like somebody sitting around inside the house with a shotgun. If you like, I don't know what you do at home, but if you ever walk into a house and you know, you're playing music for somebody who's sitting there staring at you with like kind of crazy eyes, holding a shotgun, like as you're playing, it's time to like put the fiddle away and get out of there. It is not gonna end well for you. But Saul was afraid of David because, and this is the key why he was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him. Saul recognized, because he had experienced that feeling of feeling that God was with him, and he sees it now in David, and he's know, he knows he's missing it in himself. He sees it in him, and he's afraid and angry. So Saul removed him from his presence, and he tells him, like, go out to war. Again, he's just hoping, it's like, David, if I send David to battle enough, eventually somebody's going to kill him. A stray arrow, something's going to happen, he's going to trip. I don't know, like, he's going to, like, something will happen, and eventually, Eventually he'll die, and I'll be done with this, but every time he sends David out to the battle, hoping he'll die, David has more success and comes home, and they keep on singing the song, his ten thousands. So then Saul comes up with another plan. All right, he's, he says, all right, I, I'm sending him out to battle. That's not working. He's not dying. He's, he's not getting killed. So here's what I'll do. I, I will, Goliath, Saul had offered my oldest daughter, which David had actually earned the right to marry by killing Goliath. Saul had made this promise, whoever kills Goliath will receive my daughter's hand in marriage, but he doesn't do it. Then he says, tells David, hey, I will give you my daughter's hand in marriage. And and, and hoping that David will, will try to... Uh, prove himself in order to earn his uh, daughter's hand in marriage and he will die in battle. And David responds in humility. He says, no, I'm just a peasant boy. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a songwriter. Man, I don't deserve to be the son-in-law of the king. I don't deserve that. And so he gives her to, Saul gives her to another man. But then something happens. David, David and Saul's daughter, Michael, cool girl's name, uh, they, they, they meet and they fall in love and they tell that to Saul, verse 20. And so Saul thinks in verse 21, hey, I've got a plan of how to actually kill David this time. And so he, said, he sends service to David and say, tell David I really want him to marry his son-in-law. Because here's what David's thinking. David's thinking not only is he humble and he doesn't think he deserves to be his son-in-law, but also David's thinking I'm poor and I don't have enough money to pay the king because you would pay a bride price to the father. I don't have enough money to pay the king to get Michael's hand in marriage. And here's what Saul tells his servants to tell him. Run back to David and tell him, this is all Saul wants. Uh, okay, this is kind of gross a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. 
Uh, and what that means is because, uh, just to let you guys know, just bear with me for a second, I'm not trying to be vulgar, but a grown man and his foreskin is not easily parted. And so what they're saying is, when he says, bring me a hundred Philistines foreskins, he's saying, bring me a hundred foreskins that you've cut off a hundred dead Philistines because they're feeling like over my dead body. And that's what he's saying that will happen. And, that, and so David has a deadline. David goes out and not only does he, like, does he bring back a hundred, he brings back 200. Those poor Philistines, that's, that's his insult so to injury for them, right? Like he brings back 200 and because he loves this girl, he's going to marry this girl and he thinks, man, I can't earn it. He thought he was going to trick David into being killed. David comes over and above. Why? Because God was with him. God was with him. And we see that in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David so Saul was David's enemy continually. And then look at this soap opera mess. Verse one of chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. He said, like, I, I tried my best. And now he's going to sit down with Jonathan and his servants. And I know what that conversation consisted of. It was, hey, this David guy, he's becoming more and more powerful. If he becomes king, Jonathan, you're not gonna be king. He might even try to kill you. I know you think he's your best friend, but he's gonna try to do away with my whole household. And if you are my servants, he's either gonna send you into exile or he's gonna kill you simply because you're my servants. And so it's in your best interest, not me. I, I, I love David, but it's in your best interest to go ahead and kill David. It's for your peace of mind. And maybe he even said it's for the unity of the country. We don't want us to be disunified. But Jonathan goes to David and he tells him and then he comes back and talks to his dad and he talks dad, his dad out of it by telling him in verse four, don't, don't let the king sin against his servant David. This is key. Because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause and says that Saul listened to him and he said, I will not put him to death. But then again, there's war again. And David fought the Philistines and he succeeds again. And then again, a harmful spirit comes upon Saul. And David again, like, man, this, this David guy, he either does not learn well or he is incredibly faithful. Guess which one? And he comes back to Saul's household, this man who he loved, and he plays his lyre for him to try to soothe him again when the harmful spirit comes on him. And it says again, Saul tried to kill him with a spear. He threw it so hard it stuck into the wall and somehow David, it missed him. And he finally, that's like the last straw for David. He realizes like, I gotta get out of here, all right? Like he's like, okay, that's, you know, once, twice, three times, all right, now I'm out. So he goes home to his wife, Michael, and Michael tells him, hey, Saul has sent people to spy on you and they're gonna kill you if you stay here. So she takes this large idol, sticks it in David's bed, puts goat, goat hair on the top and then sneaks David out. This isn't this is like a soap opera. Sneaks David out and he runs away to Samuel and they come in and they can't, 
They can't get David. And so Saul's like, hey, what happened? And she's like, hey, he forced me to do it. And so David is now hiding with Samuel. And Saul, again, now he hears that David is hiding with Samuel and he hears where he is. And so his plan is, I'm gonna send a gang of guys. It calls them messengers. A messengers of a king, they come armed. So they come to David in order to try to get him away from Samuel. And Samuel has a, a school of prophets there where they pray and worship the Lord and they learn how to prophesy or they prophesy before the Lord there. And these servants or messengers or soldiers come in and God's spirit falls upon them. They begin to prophesy, drop their spears, drop their swords, start to prophesy and worship the Lord. And Saul's like, hey, what happened to them? Since there's another group to them, they walk in, the spirit of God falls upon them. They drop their spears and swords and they start to worship and, and to prophesy before the Lord. And then he sends another group. They come in, same thing. God's spirit, swords drop, spears drop. They're worshiping the Lord. And finally Saul's like, hey, if you want it done right, come do it yourself. And he comes and this is, this is incredible. God's spirit doesn't wait to fall upon him when he walks into Samuel's place like those three batches of messengers before him. God's spirit falls upon him while he's still on the road on the way. And he comes to Samuel and he strips off his clothes and lays down before Samuel as a sign of humility, forced by the spirit of God and prophesies all day and night, even lasts even longer than it did for his soldiers. Saul, as we see through this, Saul perceived a threat. He thought David was a threat that wasn't really there, but he reacted. David did not plan on overthrowing Saul. We'll see that over and over again the rest of the book. He is serving Saul and trusting the Lord, but Saul perceived there to be a threat and he reacted to it. And don't we do that? How many times do you look around in your marriage or your friends or in life and you perceive there to be a threat? There's something, somebody has it out for me, something's gonna happen. I, I wonder about if my, spy, if my spouse, my wife or my husband is really looking out for my best. Uh, I wonder if God is really for me. I, 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 you look at somebody at work or you see a, a, a classmate. How many of you look on this? How many of you look on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and you see that classmate or that friend, and you are about the same, like you graduate at the same time, you're the same socioeconomic strat, stratus, status level, and you look at their, all of a sudden on their Instagram, and you see their, their, like their second house, and the wind billowing in from the ocean, or they're like, here's the view from the cabin we just bought, and it's just, you see the lake, and it's sparkling, or you see they're kids, and you haven't been able to have them. Or you see whatever, and it irks you, and you feel there's a threat against you. Saul perceived there to be a threat that wasn't there, and he reacted. David perceived a threat that actually was there and also reacted. And what we see in Saul is we see Saul is in a super bad place, and he's getting worse, right? He's tormented by evil spirits. He ends up, Ends up, he begins by disobeying the Lord in small ways chapters ago. And now he ends with, and if you count them up, these two chapters alone, 11 times he tried to kill David, his son's best friend, his faithful servant, a man he would 
fought beside in battle, tries to kill him 11 times, an attempted murderer 11 times. But the thing is, that should be interesting and scary to us is that Saul didn't begin that way. Saul didn't start out that way. And that's true for most of us, right? You find yourself in a position and you look around, you're like, but it begins a little bit by a little bit. He began as a devoted man of God. How does he get to the place where he's tormented by evil spirits and tried to kill the best friend of his son, his servant? Well, the first thing we see is that we see that Saul bought into the lie of self-rule. And this has been the lie that's been around from the very beginning. We see it whispered into the ear of both Adam and Eve in the garden. God's rule is not good enough. It's not safe enough. He's not looking out for you enough. You would be safer, you would be better off if you were calling the shots yourself. If you were calling the shots on your own life, and, if, and frankly, and let's just be honest, if I was getting ready to call the, the shots for the people around me, if they would just do what I said, tell them to do, everybody would be happier, or at least I would. Everything would feel more comfortable if they would just do what I tell them to do. If I could just rule myself and rule this world, then things would be better. We, we at the heart, this lie that is whispered into our, our ear, just like it was whispered into Saul's ear, is that you can't trust the Lord to rightly rule over you and around you. You can't trust him. We see that in Saul earlier with these little episodes where he begins to disobey in little ways. He's, he, and and th- look at this. It's got to be easy for him because he is the king. Like, he's li- like you and I, nobody's a king in here. He's literally the king of Israel. He's used to calling the shots. And he thinks he should be able to call shots on his own life and the people around him without seeking the wisdom and without submitting himself to God Almighty who rules above him, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He refuses to submit. That is the lie that has been whispered in all of our ears and is the snake that slithers in every single one of our bosom and continually bites us and sends its poisonous venom into our hearts and bloodstreams. You can and you should rule your own life and rule your own world. And if people would just bow themselves to you and do what you want them to do and tell them to do, then you would be so much happier. That snake that weaves itself into our very core of our being is called pride. Pride isn't just thinking like... (laughs) Like when we think like, oh, that guy's a prideful guy. It's that insidious, sneaky snake inside our hearts and minds that we often don't even see and understand and comprehend. It's just, it's just the atmosphere that you and I live in that tells us that you should be the ruler of yourself. No one else should rule you. And if you can, the best people in life, the most successful people in life are those who have found a way to rule themselves and to rule the people around them and to achieve and to succeed in all that they want to do and get everything they want. But you know what happens? The end of that way ends the same 
same way it did for Adam and Eve. It always ends death and destruction. It ends in separation from us and God. It ends in separation between us and each other because we're trying to rule ourselves when he should be our ruler and we are made to submit to him and we're trying to rule the people around us when we are made to live in submission and love and sacrifice to each other. Saul bought into the age-old lie of self-rule and Saul became a glory seeker or a glory stealer. We see the, the roots here. We see the roots here. In these little ways that he disobeyed the Lord beforehand, we see it in the fact that he just wants people to validate him and tell him he's important and he's good and he's capable. Whenever he achieves a victory, he builds himself a monument. He wants people to see, like, he wants people to think, like, like, like he saw awesome and Saul is great. And so he attempts to validate himself. And there's only one person who's made to receive all glory and honor. And that's God Almighty. And we are made to give that to him and reflect any glory that comes to us back to him. And when we hold it for ourselves, we're stealing. We are stealing. Hear that. You are stealing what rightfully belongs to the God of the universe. And you are taking something into your soul that you are not made to hold, that I am not made to handle. I am not capable of being the one who's glorified. I always break down under that pressure and you do the same, but we are always constantly tempted to steal that glory for ourselves. And you know what that becomes in our souls? It becomes envy. We don't talk about envy. We don't see it. We don't address it very often. But envy eats away at your soul. Remember that phrase I told you to remember how from that day on his eye was on David? Have you ever felt that? Like somebody around you started to succeed? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's a friend. And you cannot help but you can't take your eye off them. You know, like eventually you see like, this is cross a healthy boundary. Like I'm, I'm almost stalking them at this point, but you just can't take your eyes off them because you see them getting glory, getting success, like getting happiness. And, and it doesn't matter how happy you are in your own life. You can have a good marriage and kids and whatever it is that you consider success, but you look over and you see what they're getting and it feels like a zero-sum game that for every penny that's dropped into their bank account, it's a less penny from yours. That's not the way it works, but that's the way envy starts to work in our our souls when we are trying to steal the glory for ourselves and that envy, it starts to color everything that we see and everything that we say and everything that we do. He locks onto David and he can't get beyond his success. And as a result of that, as a result of buying into the lie lie of self-rule and trying to steal God's glory and having pride and envy lock around his heart like a python, Saul begins to spiral down. And not only does he become destructive to the people around him, which he does, right? Like everything that he's doing is destructive to the people around him. But it's also, and eventually he would probably see this, it becomes self-destructive. And that's what happens to us when we feel threatened and we try to clutch onto the lie of self-rule. We try to steal God's glory in order to validate ourselves. We become destructive to the people around us and to ourselves. 
It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys lives. It destroys businesses. That's how Saul responded. But how did David respond? David stands as a stark contrast to Saul. Because it's interesting, remember, Saul's threats were not valid, yet he perceived them to be, and he reacted. David's threats against him are valid. He reacts. But listen, remember, don't just read this as like some crazy story. Remember, these are attacks against David by someone very close to him, someone he loves and trusted. He didn't walk into Saul's house with a firearm because he felt threatened. He was in Saul's house as someone who, before, a couple of chapters ago, it says that Saul loved him. They were close with each other. He became best friends with his son. He marries his daughter. He fights with him in battle. And yet he's being deeply betrayed by Saul. Doesn't betrayal hurt deeper? Doesn't it sting more than other kinds of hurt? I guess one thing if somebody says something, you know, hey, you, you have an ugly face to you. Like, like that, might, that might haunt you. But if your husband looks at you and says, man, you used to be pretty, but now you're ugly. I'm not attracted to you anymore. That stings deeper. That's harder. And the most powerful man in the country, not only is it betrayal, but the most powerful man in the country wants David dead. So how does David respond? This is interesting because this section of Samuel that talks about David is, interestingly enough, the longest section in ancient literature about one person that exists. It shows us a lot about David's, his life. And David responds to Saul's ravings. Remember, Saul is raving against David for no real reason. He, he feels threatened. He's jealous. Like, that's obvious. But David has no desire to usurp Saul. And David responds to Saul's ravings with humility. With humility. Hey, remember when, when uh, they... The people come to him and say, and Saul says, hey, take my oldest daughter's hand in marriage. What does, Saul, what does David say? He's like, man, I'm not worthy of that. When, when David could have seen it as a power play, man, if I marry Saul's daughter, we have a kid, all of a sudden I brought our houses together, and then what happens if Saul just happens to slip in the shower and he dies? And then, you know, Jonathan, like I can get him on my side and I can become king and it would be legitimate. Like there's ways that David could have schemed and could have made it happen. But David remained humble. David responded to Saul's injustice. Remember, it was not just what Saul was doing to him. David responds to Saul's injustice by how? By serving him. That's what Jonathan said to, to Saul when he, was try, when he tried to get Jonathan and, his, and the servants to kill him. He said, hey, why would you kill David? He's done no wrong for you, and he's continually served you. And you know what's interesting about that is that David, as the subject to Saul, as Saul being king, David owed obedience and service to the king. And sometimes we want to feel like because that person has wronged me, because my wife or my husband has wronged me, because my boss has wronged me, because my friend has wronged me, then I have the right to do what I want to do in this situation to overcome them. Because... I've been wrong, and therefore the trust has been broken. And David said, no, I have been wrong, but he's still the king, and I'm going to serve him until God changes that. 
He's faithful. David responds to Saul's injustice by sacrificing himself for Saul's sake. That's what Jonathan said. He said, Dad, David has continually sacrificed himself for you. Like, sure, they're singing songs about David, but you're the one that gets the loot and the, and the booty when he comes home. You're the one whose kingdom is doing better. He's serving you in this. He's sacrificing himself. And then David responds by sticking, and this is important, I think, for all of us. Whenever you feel threatened by something that's real or just perceived, when you feel threatened, when there's danger, when there's something that's coming against you and against me, David responds by sticking to the task at hand. He responds by sticking to the task that God placed in his hand. So often we're tempted to run or tempted to fight, right? Some of us are fighters and some of us are runners, flighters. David sticks there and does what God had put in his hand to do, serve his king. And then David responds, and this is important, by being content with delayed gratification. David knew he was anointed to be king of Israel. And David said, I would rather delay gratification and do what God has called me to do in the way that he's called me to do it than to try and make something happen, even if I know God has called it, because I want his will and his timing, and I will delay gratification. And some of us are tempted to do that. Maybe you really want to be married, and you're like, man, if I wait and do it God's way, I don't think there's a godly man out there or a godly woman out there how will I ever meet them? And you're going to be tempted to take shortcuts on the way to try to make it happen and self-rule for yourself. I encourage you, stick with the route of delayed gratification and trust the Lord will have his way and that he's powerful enough, powerful enough to do what he says that he's going to do. Now, here's important. Because all those things sound great, right? Like David... He's humble and he serves and he sacrifices and he, he's steadfast and he has delayed gratification. But where does he find the motivation to do that? And here's where he found the motivation. We see it three times in this chapter and we saw it in the psalm that we read last week. We see it in verses 12 and 14 and 28 of this chapter. For the Lord was with him. For the Lord was was with him. And for David, that was enough for him. The Lord is with me. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges. There won't be, it doesn't mean there won't be times where my life is threatened. It doesn't mean there won't be threats against me. But if he is with me, then I can bear anything because I know he is powerful enough and strong enough and he loves me and he is, there's no one that can conquer, conquer him. If the Lord was with him, then David knew that he could bear anything in the present. And that's true for you as well. If the Lord is with you, and I don't know what you're going through, and it could be all kinds of things, not to trivialize it or play it down. It might be major. It might be painful and hard. But if the Lord is with you, you can bear anything in the present. And if the Lord is with you, David knew he could look forward to the future. 
I don't know what it's gonna look like or how we're gonna get there. I don't know how you're gonna get me out of this place. I don't know if he's gonna succeed in killing me, but I know, I know that my future is safe as long as you are with me because what your rod and your staff comfort me because you are in my presence and therefore you spread out a table before me in the presence of my enemies though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What? I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm strong and I'm brave and I've self-disciplined and self-controlled and I've got it together. I've got a strong enough army with me. No, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. If he is with me, I can make it through anything in the present and I know my future is absolutely secure in him. And look at what God's presence provided quickly. Look at what God's presence provided for David. It provided success for David in his service. Every time Saul tries to push David into a place of service that will put him down and and will take him out, David actually succeeds in that service. We see that through scripture, right? Joseph sold into slavery he succeeds in Potiphar's house, wrongly accused in Potiphar's house, in jail. He succeeds in jail in Egypt. God and his brothers come to him. He succeeds. He succeeds. And I'm not telling you everything that you do is going to be a financial success. I'm just saying that if God is with you, he will give you whatever success you need to have in the way that you're serving him where he has placed you. Here's what God's presence provided, David, and will provide you favor with those who could help. Because David was following the Lord, sticking close to him, and knew he was with him, then God stirred people's hearts around him to care for him and watch over him even if they were the king's son and daughter themselves. And God, if, you are, if he is with you, he will do, do whatever he has to do to give favor with you, with the people around you in the times that you really need it. Again, that's not health, wealth, and prosperity. That's saying in the valley of the shadow of death, he will do that. God's presence with David provided a clear contrast with Saul and God's very presence with him provided his presence. Sometimes it's nothing more than that. That's a spiritual answer, but there's nothing like, really, there's no greater thing that God's presence provides than his presence. To feel his smiling face upon you, old to feel his loving presence with you when things are dark and cold, to feel in some way his arms wrap around you, to feel a peace fill your heart and mind and soul that can't be explained otherwise. And that has been the testimony of saints who have gone before us The testimony of saints over and over again has been God's presence is enough. It is sustaining and it is enough. It is more than enough. More than enough. They've endured terrible torment and threats. But again and again, God's presence proves more than enough. Not just enough, but more than enough. Now, What kind of threats do you face? What kind of threats do you face? Maybe to somebody else it wouldn't seem very big. It would seem very minor. Maybe it is big. Do you face financial threats? 
health issues. Maybe your family is a mess. Your relationship with your kids or your parents is a mess. There's always animosity there. Maybe your marriage seems like it's doomed to just be a terrible, bad marriage forever and we li- you live as two strangers in the same house. Maybe it's personal sin that you deal with and you feel like I will never be able to overcome this. I just have these mental issues. Like just, I just, I can't fixate. I, I can't, I deal with depression. I, that whatever it is for you, like wrongs have been done to you that you just can't seem to get past. And now think, <coughs> excuse me, how do you respond when you feel threatened? <coughs> Poorly timed. How do you respond when you feel threatened? When you feel it's dark, when you feel the valley of the shadow of death closing in over you, how do you respond? Do you try to validate yourself? Do you, do you frantically try to validate yourself somehow? Uh, if success or money or relationships or enough sexual encounters or enough whatever, like if I can, if I can gather this to myself and I will feel better about myself and, and I can try to build, take these things to build this sort of wall against me and this threat that I feel pressing in on me. Do you try to make yourself feel safe and secure? Are you tempted to self-rule? Are you tempted to steal glory from the Lord? Do you feel envy weaving itself around your heart or pride? Do you try to steal his glory? If so, like, how can you and I learn how to respond like David? Because if we end there and just say, hey, don't be like Saul, be like David, you know, happy Sunday, go watch some football. Like, you go home, like, you're, like I can try for a day or two, and then you're like, I, I give up. I'm, I'm Saul, I am not David. Oh, and our glory stealing. But how do we even do that? We do so by saying this. There's one who, like Jonathan, took off his robe, laid aside his glory, in order to place it around your shoulders when you do not deserve it. There's one like Jonathan whose heart has been knit to you out of love, not because of anything that you bring to the table, but just because he loves you. Like Jonathan, there's one who's made a covenant with you to watch out for you and your good until the moment through darkness and the shadow of death you come to sit upon the throne that he has called you to. There's one like David and better than David who has endured scorn, who has been humble whenever he was reviled, who sacrificed whenever he was wrongly accused, who served even whenever he was, he was being betrayed at the very moment. Of course, that's Jesus. And if you see the love that he has for you and the grace that he has shown for you and the promises that he has made to sustain you and to keep you and to take you home, then you know I can trust that he is with me. And I can repent of trying to steal that glory 
I can repent of trying to rule myself and I can trust that he has my best at heart and that he deserves all the glory and I'm content with that. He calls us to stand firm. But that doesn't come from our work. It comes from seeing him, beholding him, and responding the only the way that makes sense. Here's what we want to take away from this. If the Lord stands with you, then stand firm. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.